call came into Akron Police Dispatch at 11 o'clock, the morning of March 19, 1985. Scott David Perk was on the other end. His wife had just hung herself from the second floor railing of their home in the Timber Top Apartments. An ambulance was dispatched. Paramedics arrived to find Margaret Perk on the floor, nearly naked, her belly bulging with a baby that was just days away from being born. They worked quickly to restore her pulse and raced her to the hospital, hoping, at the very least, to save the child. They couldn't save either. Scott Perk told authorities his wife had been depressed. A pathologist did an autopsy and confirmed her death was a suicide. The Summit County Coroner signed the ruling, case closed. Margaret, with baby David tucked into her arms, was lowered into a grave at North Lawn Memorial Gardens in Cuyahoga Falls. There she remained for the next 24 years. And then along came a nosy detective from the city next door. Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and BeaconJournal.com. This is Exhumed, a three-part series that examines the four exhumations conducted for Summit County authorities over 12 years. I'm Stephanie Warsmith, a reporter at the Beacon Journal, and helping with this podcast and the series are the co-host of Ohio Mysteries, Paula Schleiss and Steve Yoder. Exhumations can give law enforcement a second chance at solving some stubborn riddles. It doesn't always work. In two of those four Summit County cases, a second autopsy of remains did not advance the cold case. But in the other two, exhumations answered questions so old that people had frankly stopped asking them. In this episode, we focus on the two successes, the nearly forgotten stories of Margaret Perk and Linda Pagano. First, Margaret. Actually, they called her Meg. She and her brother Mike, who was two years younger, were born in Rochester, New York, to Jack and Ann Metcalf. But Jack found work in Akron's rubber industry, and in 1965, when Meg was five and Mike just three, they made the move to Ohio and settled in the Akron suburb of Stowe. With their family so far away, the two young siblings grew up with a close bond. She had a goofy side, you know. It was, she was pretty much outgoing, you know, liked to play. And uh, uh, the neighborhood we grew up in, there was a lot of kids in the area all our age, so 
you know, that was, um, since she was the oldest, she kind of met people first. And then, so I hung out with her friends for a little while and then, you know, made my own. That's Mike Metcalf, Meg's brother. He lives in Akron. You know, she was, it was the one thing. She was actually pretty good about including me and stuff when we were growing up. We spent a lot of time together, too, because all the rest of our family uh, was up in New York. Both Meg and Mike went to Stowe High School. Meg wasn't a brainiac. She worked hard for her grades, but she did pretty well. I don't think she really struggled too much, especially when it came like to English classes, writing classes, things like that. Did she ever talk about what she wanted to do when she grew up? Did she want to be a wife and mom or did she have other dreams? It kind of changed you now every couple of years. You know, there was different things she wanted to do. She wanted to sing. She wanted to write. You know, she wanted to be a wife and a mom. One day in Meg's senior year, Mike arrived home to find one of his classmates leaving the house. It was Scott Perk, and he had been visiting Meg. Mike never learned how the pair had met. Back then, Stowe School separated their underclassmen. Freshmen and sophomores, like Mike and Scott, attended a different building than Meg and her fellow juniors and seniors. Since Meg was two years older than Scott, their paths wouldn't easily have crossed. And yet, somehow, they had. She hadn't really mentioned that she met him. I just was coming home one day and saw him leaving the house. And you know, it was one of those jaw-dropping. I was like, what is this? And Mike Metcalf didn't like what he saw. I knew Scott. Didn't like Scott. He was odd. He did odd things. There's a picture in our yearbook. He is not identified. All it says is the mysterious Madam X. And it was Scott on a bet, like for some fireworks or something like that, came to school dressed up as a woman. I mean, he kind of looked like Jackie Kennedy, but, uh, you know, like principal sent him home right then and there. Mike recalled his parents wanted to give Scott a chance. You know, they tried to be accepting at first, you know, just meeting him. You don't, you get a, you always got a weird vibe from him. You know, they tried at first, but after you got talking with them, yeah, they they were not impressed. A couple years later, after an on and off courtship, Meg and Scott were engaged. But the relationship between Meg and her family had become so strained, Meg didn't invite them to her wedding. We found out about a week later after they married that they were married. His his family was invited. This ceremony was here in Stowe or Akron or something. You know, I don't, know exactly where she probably knew it was better not to tell us. Mike did get to see his sister from time to time. And in 1984, she was getting ready to become a mom. I did. It was you know one of those things she wouldn't shut up about. Like I said, we didn't talk a whole lot just, you know, because of the whole situation. But yeah, I mean, anytime we did talk, you know, hi, how you doing? Then baby, 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 baby. <laughs> That's all I ever heard. But Mike wasn't convinced her marriage was a particularly happy one. I think at one point, Meg thought he was maybe having an affair because he would go out at night, kind of dressed up in his all-black outfits. She thought he had, might have had a girlfriend on the side. Yeah, so I think there was a little bit of a strain there. By March of 1985, the couple had been married three years. Scott was 22, Meg, 24. He worked as a security guard. She was an insurance claims adjuster. 
They lived on the Akron border with Cuyahoga Falls in a trendy apartment complex called Timbertop, overlooking the scenic Merriman Valley. On March 19th, Jack and Ann Metcalf got a phone call to come to the hospital. Meg had hung herself, they were told. She still had a heartbeat, but it didn't look good. And her baby didn't make it. The next day, Meg joined her baby son. The Metcalfs were stunned. Suicide? How was that possible? Was their relationship with their daughter so distant that they missed the signs? Was the pure joy she expressed over the coming birth of her son actually hiding some sort of mental suffering they couldn't see? If she had killed herself, that didn't mean Scott wasn't to blame, Mike told his parents. When they got home from the hospital after she had passed, we just kind of looked at each other as like, what did he do? If, if it really had been a suicide, what did he do to drive her to that at, you know, at this point in her life? She was so excited to have this baby. It's like, you know, what what do you do to somebody to to make, you know, 180 degrees like that? You know, suddenly be so excited to bring a new life in to, to kill yourself. Akron police were clearly wondering that themselves. They gave Scott Perk two polygraphs. He passed one. The other was inconclusive. And... After Scott signed a typewritten statement for the report, a detective scribbled in the margins that there were some conflicting details worth a second look. But that became moot because the man who did Meg's autopsy, a physician named Dr. Roberto Ruiz, who had no training in forensic pathology, supported Scott's story. Ruiz said the bruising around Meg's neck was consistent with the rope on which she had been hung. And he accepted Scott's contention that his wife had emotional problems. The coroner's signature that made Ruiz's ruling official was the final nail on the coffin, so to speak. Authorities may have closed the case, but Meg's family continued to wonder. And Meg's mother, Anne, remained a thorn in the side of police for several years. You know, she would call and ask them if there was anything they could do. And that's what they told her. You know, their hands were tied. It got ruled, you know, the suicide that closed the case. They weren't allowed to reopen it unless, you know, some kind of new evidence came to light. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. It took 24 years, but that light came. And when it did, it was in the form of a blaze. Shadows and darkness. 
March 2009. The house on Uniondale Avenue was still smoldering when Stowe Detective Ken Mifflin arrived. Firefighters were still at work putting out the hot spots. The house had been fully engulfed. In other words, uh, every, pretty much every room in the house had been on fire, and uh, it was a total loss. So it was definitely burning to the ground. That's Detective Mifflin. He recently retired after 33 years on the force, 23 of them in Stowe. It was Mifflin's job to question the home occupants about what had happened. He found the homeowner. His name was Scott Perk. Scott was living in the home with his second wife, Tammy, and their two children, a 16-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. They discovered the fire at 3 a.m. and managed to escape without injury. They were lucky, Detective Mifflin was thinking, because the house fire was no accident. An arsonist had torn the insulation off a front yard meter and used a wrench to open the gas pipe. Fuel had been poured around the house and to the meter, where gas was flowing freely with a great roaring sound. It sure looked like someone was trying to kill the perks. It was bitterly cold that night, so Mifflin invited Scott to sit with him in his unmarked detective's car while questioning him. I had asked him about what he had done throughout the day that day. I had asked him uh, questions relating to, did he have any idea who might want to set this fire? Did he have any enemies, anybody possibly recently that wished him ill uh, at, at the time? So the conversation probably lasted, I would guess, 20 minutes, a half hour in the car. And then... The conversation took a bizarre twist. Perk stopped talking about the fire and started talking about his dead wife instead. He told the detective how Meg had been eight and a half months pregnant, how Scott had been home when she dragged a rope to the banister of the second floor of their apartment and flung herself over it while he was taking a bath. There was no reason for me to be bringing that uh, up at all. You know, we were talking about everything that had happened at his and that was going on right now at his house. And, you know, I'm looking at him as being a potentially, their family being a victim of an um, aggravated arson. And he's bringing up what happened, you know, 24 years ago to his first wife when there was no reason to bring it up. Mifflin's interview with Scott ended, but a seed had been planted. A seed that started to grow after Mifflin learned arson investigators were starting to think that the person who set fire to the Perk family home was Scott Perk. As the picture became clear, we were looking at it as, you know, the homeowner was probably involved somehow. If not, they probably knew who was involved with it. And if Scott Perk was capable of setting fire to his own house with his kids inside, what else was he capable of? It wasn't hard to find the answer. Scott Perk had a colorful criminal record. Those nights when Scott was dressing all in black and leaving the house for the evening, he may have been starting his career as the ninja burglar. The year after Meg's death, Scott was picked up driving a stolen car. That led to the revelation that he had been responsible for breaking into a dozen homes in Hudson, Stowe, 
Cuyahoga Falls, and Akron. In each case, the homeowners, mostly single women, were asleep in their beds. Scott fancied himself a martial artist, carrying nunchucks or throwing stars. He left with their money, valuable items, and usually a pair of their underwear as a trophy. His crime spree earned him a prison sentence. He served seven years before being paroled in 1993. So now, Scott might not only be an arsonist, he was a burglar, Detective Mifflin thought. There was even a domestic violence charge on his rap sheet, and rumors that he might have had something to do with a fire at a trailer he once lived in, and another at the home of Meg's grandparents. Detective Mifflin thought back to that conversation he had with Scott in his car, that frigid morning with the smoke still rising from the remains of Scott's house when all he wanted to talk about was his dead wife. There's a reason why he was telling me that. In the back of my mind, I was looking at it as, I really believe that at the time that he set the fires, right? So now it's like, he wants us to be able to prove it. So it's almost like a catch me if you can type of challenge. So he he piqued my interest, you know? So that's why I thought, well, if he's piquing my interest that much, my gut tells me I I should look into it. So uh, that's why I got the police report. A friend at the Akron Police Department was happy to dust off the old Margaret Perk binder, the one that detectives had reluctantly closed back in 1985. The reports had uh, a lot of detailed information about their, their initial investigation. There were just some things that stood out, like most importantly, he was in the apartment when his wife, who was nine months pregnant, had hung herself in a very short period of time while he was taking a bath? Did she really have a couple minutes to, being nine months pregnant, grab a tow rope from the hall closet, tie it off at the bottom of a banister, string it up, make a noose, and hang herself all in a couple minutes? And he's pretending that, uh, you know, that, that's all it took was just a couple minutes to do that. And the Summit County Coroner's report only heightened his suspicions. There was a suspicious lie across her chest, Margaret Burke's chest at the time of autopsy, that they really didn't know what it was. They thought maybe it was from a bra. That made me want to look at the coroner's report's pictures. So I was able to look at that, as well as the marks on her neck that were uh, also suspicious looking. Everything that was notated in the Akron Police Report, Scott Burke had said that he had laid out his wife's clothing for her to get dressed after taking a bath. But yet, there was nothing in the report that indicated there was any clothing laying out anywhere for her to get dressed to go to the hospital or the doctor's office. Again, little things, but the little things added up to a big picture of, we don't think that this is really a suicide. Mifflin met with representatives from the Akron Police Department, the current Summit County Medical Examiner's Office, and the prosecutor. Collectively, they decided there was enough concern here that maybe someone should take another look at Meg herself. Medical examiner's office decided, you know what, we need to examine the, uh, the body further, so let's do an exhumation and see if there's any other evidence that either may have been missed, overlooked, never found. A Summit County judge signed the order, and Detective Mifflin called Meg's mom to let her know that her daughter's case was being reopened. Meanwhile, the arson case against Scott was advancing. In August of 2011, he was arrested on aggravated arson charges and attempted murder. That second charge was because a year after trying to burn his own house down, 
he started a fire at a second nearby home where a woman sleeping inside escaped after being alerted by a neighbor. Authorities could only guess it was a sloppy attempt to make it look like a serial arsonist was targeting his neighborhood, hoping to deflect attention from himself. So, when Mifflin went looking for Scott to tell him about the upcoming exhumation, Scott was already behind bars. My partner and I at the time, we went and visited him at the Summit County Jail uh, before he went to trial on the ag arson cases, and we let him know that we were planning on doing an exhumation of his first wife's body and unborn son. At that time, all he asked was, and who gave you permission to do so? That's when Scott Perk learned that being indicted for arson and attempted murder wasn't even the worst thing happening to him that week. Because five days later, Meg's white metal casket was removed from the ground at North Lawn Memorial Cemetery. The second autopsy was done by Dr. Dorothy Dean, a forensic pathologist and Summit County's deputy medical examiner. Meg's brother, Mike, wasn't sure what they expected to find. I didn't understand, you know, or couldn't figure out how after all this many years, what could they learn? You know, it's like, you know, you used to seeing stuff in movies that, uh, you know, body unfortunately is too far gone. But I guess they were able to learn quite a bit. They probably, you know, obviously know a lot more than I do. You know, no idea that there was, they could find it. Oh, they found something all right. The competency of the pathologist who had done that original examination and former coroner William Cox, who had signed his report without question, were also coming under scrutiny. For starters, the hyoid bone in Meg's neck should have been removed for examination. The bruising on her neck could have been dissected, and her tongue may have held some clues. All those things weren't done, but yet the report indicates that some of those things were done. And so that's a problem because people are signing off as having done the work, uh, probably thinking that this case, no one would ever, no one would ever know. But it was shoddy work on the coroner's office at the time. Also, the object that had killed Meg wasn't a rope at all. The pattern on Meg's neck revealed a broad strap with holes and odd horizontal dashes. Dr. Dean recognized those dashes. They matched the stitches of a leather belt. The pathologist back in 1985 had also missed a bruise found on Meg's lower back. That was huge because that also led us to the big picture of what probably happened, you know, in causing Margaret's death. In our minds, Meg being nine months pregnant, you know, she had to put up a fight, okay? But she's not only protecting herself, but she's protecting her, her baby, right? And bruising her lower back was probably caused by him sticking, Scott sticking his knee in her lower back as he's strangling her with a belt and, you know, basically pinning her to either the wall, the floor, uh, uh, the bed, wherever. But she's being pinned, you know, with that knee and he's pulling back on the, on the ligature around her neck by forcing his knee forward on her back. She was pretty much helpless, unfortunately, you know, fighting for her life and her, and her child's life while Scott is killing her. And an odd rope burn across Meg's chest, the one that the first pathologist chalked up to a bra strap? It was rope, likely from when Scott lassoed his 200-pound pregnant wife to drag her beneath the banister 
and position her for the story he was about to create. Uh, Dr. Dean, they changed the actual uh, death certificate. I mean, they changed it to ligature strangulation. Her death was a homicide, and the, the new death certificate reflects uh, both of those items. She was definitely murdered. Even without, without the exhumation, I think we had a solid case, but we definitely felt a lot better knowing that we did the exhumation, we found evidence that was definitely uh, indicative of a struggle and that this was uh, an intentional act, you know, and that she had not hung herself. So yeah, the exhumation was huge. The arson case against Scott ended on January 24th, 2013, when Scott pleaded guilty and was sentenced to 28 years in prison. Scott never gave a motive. The authorities suspected it was to collect on the insurance and pay off some of his substantial debt. Now, it was time to face a reckoning in the murder of his first wife. The trial opened in November of 2015. Scott Perk was now 53 years old. There were challenges. All the original crime scene photos were destroyed, so police did recreations to demonstrate what happened to the jury. And the case was weak on motivation. There was no clear explanation of why Scott wanted his wife and child dead. Only a guess that he wasn't ready for the responsibility of having a family. Scott has never for one second ever let on that he was ever uh, guilty of this crime. He was never ever going to confess to it. You know, Scott, uh, that was, that's not in his DNA. He got away with it for so many years and then finally said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And uh, it led, a, led us down this path. But the law doesn't require a motive. And Meg's brother Mike took the stand to offer evidence that his sister couldn't have been suicidal. He had a letter Meg had written to her grandparents in Allegheny, New York, dated just five days before her death. I feel great, she wrote, and full of energy. Have cleaned the house twice in two days. And Scott's mom says that's normal right before the baby's birth. Just think, any day now you're going to be a great grandmother, and I'll be a mother. A mother. It's even hard for me to believe, but I'm looking forward to it, and so is Scott. Meg Perk signed off by telling her grandmother, I hope that after the baby is born, maybe I can come up to visit, and then you can know the baby too. But I'll wait until you're ready. We'll call you as soon as the little one's here. Scott, of course, wasn't without a defense. His attorney, Kristen Kowalski, tried to cast doubt on the image of a happy mother-to-be. In her opening statement, Kowalski brought up one of the many poems Meg had written about a young girl's fragile life that ended in suicide. But the real star of Scott's trial was Dr. Dorothy Dean. The new evidence she found and the confident and eloquent way she had of presenting it won the day. Mike Metcalf said he was blown away. That little lady is a is bundle of energy, and she's dynamite, and she knows her stuff. Um, she was, it was almost like watching a, a TV show or a movie. The trial took six days. Jury deliberations took four hours. Left the courthouse, got to my house, didn't even get, uh, barely made it to my front door, and the phone was going off, getting called back, so. 
Scott was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 18 years. Combined with the sentence in his arson case, he is not eligible for parole until 2050. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio versus the world makes history fun again. He's serving time at the Pickaway Correctional Institution. It was a great feeling knowing that uh, all the work that began back in 1985 you know, all the great work that really had been done with, with uh, Akron PD, and then it continued on with our agency and the help, obviously, the Summit County Prosecutor's Office. It was a great feeling knowing that uh, all the work that began back in 1985, you know, all the great work that really had been done with, with uh, Akron PD, and then it continued on with our agency and the help, obviously, the Summit County Prosecutor's Office. And I felt really good knowing that the family and friends finally got justice you know, from something that's been, at the time, 26 years uh, in the making. That's the most important thing. Scott's conviction was the highlight of a career for a cop who grew up wanting to catch the bad guys. The Cleveland-born Mifflin joined the force despite the gentle objections of two parents who wanted him to take a safer path. They wanted me to go to college, get a degree, go into the business world, work nine to five, have weekends, holidays off, and live life happily ever after. And every parent wants you to have things better than what they did when they were younger. And my, my dad, you know, God rest his soul, he had passed away recently. He worked for General Motors for 30 years. He was a tool and die maker. He worked all kinds of crazy hours. I, I laugh now because now I, I understand the idea of wanting better for your kids. Mifflin thinks it took his parents a good decade to understand his choice. And after Scott Perk was convicted, his father, by then his only surviving parent, acknowledged what a difference his son had made. And my dad was, was a very tough individual, you know, and I mean that very lovingly. He was a man of few words, uh, but he got those few words in and he told me how proud he was about this case and knew what it must have taken to solve it. Plus, which I'm always grateful to hear any, any kind of words like that from, uh, from my dad. Mifflin wishes Meg's mom could have fully appreciated that the man who killed her daughter had been brought to justice. But six years had passed between that day when Mifflin's curiosity was stirred and the morning that Scott was sentenced to prison. 
In that time, the early dementia Anne exhibited when Mifflin first met her had grown more significant. So the detective left it up to Mike Metcalf to try to explain the verdict. I hadn't talked to her about the trial. I didn't say anything about the trial going on the whole time. Once the verdict came back a couple days later, and it's like I said, it had been announced on the radio and all that. But um, I went over and I told her, you know, they, they finally took Scott to trial and they found him guilty. And she smiled. But it really, it was not the reaction that I expected. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of reaction. So I don't know if she fully comprehended or I don't it, it was hard to say at that time. And so, Mike Medcalf was the last member of Meg's immediate family capable of celebrating. And frankly, he was now content to move on. He said as much in the statement he was able to deliver in court during Scott's sentencing. The Bible teaches us to, you know, to forgive. And I said, you know, we have forgiven you and now we'll forget you. There's a second case in Summit County in which an exhumation did not catch a killer, but did solve a huge mystery for one local family whose loved one vanished more than 40 years ago. This is the story of Linda Pagano, and it goes back to the summer of 1974. Richard Nixon had just resigned. George Foreman and Muhammad Ali were preparing for their rumble in the jungle, and Eric Clapton's I Shot the Sheriff was topping the charts. In Akron's Kenmore neighborhood, 17-year-old Linda Pagano was on top of the world. It's not that Linda's life was perfect. Her parents were divorced, and her mother had recently left her second husband, Byron Claflin. Linda didn't like her mom's new boyfriend, so when her mom and two siblings moved to Springfield, Linda stayed with her stepdad. They moved into an apartment on Carnegie Avenue in Kenmore on the shores of Nesmith Lake. But on this August 31st, life seemed full of possibilities for the petite girl with long blonde hair and blue eyes. She was beginning her senior year in just one week and her closet was filled with a new school wardrobe. She had a new gold Mustang, which she had used that summer to take her best friend on a cross-country adventure. And she had a new boyfriend who was taking her to a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert at Cleveland Stadium that night. The pair of them headed off in Linda's Mustang, enjoyed the evening, then Linda dropped off her bow before heading to that apartment she shared with her stepdad. Byron Claflin had a reputation for drinking and becoming violent. He owned a local bar called Hillwood Grill and spent too much time sampling his own inventory. And when Linda arrived home that night, he was mad. He told her she had stayed out late, and their argument continued until 4 a.m. when Claflin said he demanded Linda leave. Linda will never be seen or heard from again. Her Mustang never left the apartment parking lot. Her disappearance didn't make the news. 
In the 1970s, teenage runaways were common. In 1974, Akron police took reports on 1,882 of them. That was an average of 36 runaways a week. At first, it seemed plausible that Linda had gone somewhere to cool off. But when she didn't reach out to her best friend, or that boy she was crazy about, or her siblings, her mom, Anne, was increasingly convinced that something was wrong. They made flyers using Linda's last school photo and offered a reward, plastering the posters on area gas stations and businesses. Given Byron Claflin's reputation for drinking and his admission that he and Linda had argued the night before she vanished, they implored police to investigate him. But there was no body, no sign of a struggle, no witnesses, no evidence of any kind. Days turned into weeks, weeks into months, months into years. Byron Claflin died in 1990. Linda's mother died in 2012. Then, in 2015, a Cleveland College student researching her family's genealogy became curious about a notation in an index of Cuyahoga County burials. The inquisitive student was Christina Skates, and as she skimmed a list of graves in the Potter's Field section of Highland Park Cemetery, she spotted one entry that tugged at her heart. They were the bones of a young woman estimated to be about 20 years old, not much younger than Skates herself. There was no name, just a notation she had been shot in the head. Skates did some research and learned the bones had been found by three teenage boys on February 5, 1975. They were lying on the banks of the Rocky River in a Strongsville Park now known as Millstream Run Reservation. Cleveland Metro Park's rangers sent out inquiries to area law enforcement agencies in 1975, but the bones were never identified. They were laid to rest three months later and completely forgotten. Until Christina Skates came along. Christina shared her find with a group of internet sleuths, and the dominoes began to fall. Someone in that group mentioned the unidentified bones to an acquaintance in the Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner's Office. Authorities realized they had never included those remains on a national database that tries to match missing persons with Jane and John Doe's across the country. They corrected that oversight, and within days, a detective in Akron, Ohio, spotted the new addition. Akron Police Sergeant Jeff Smith immediately recognized that the poor soul buried in Highland Park Cemetery matched the age, build, and date of one of Akron's oldest missing persons cases, Linda Pagano. At Akron's request, Cuyahoga County exhumed the bones, and a DNA test proved it was Linda. Police say their top suspect in Linda's death is, not surprisingly, her stepfather. But since Byron Claflin is dead, this case is all but guaranteed to remain officially unsolved. Still, an exhumation gave Linda's siblings a sense of closure. Proof their sister had never run away. Linda's remains were cremated, and she is now buried with her mother at Holy Cross Cemetery in Akron. Next, on part three of Exhumed. 
The Unsolved Murders of Marion Brubaker and Linda Komar. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts.